0: Hi, I'm Melissa Ritz, and this is Served, a podcast about female military veterans and their experiences in and out of uniform. Today, I'm joined by Vicki Jordan, an Army veteran and retiree from the NSA, where she served as Chief of Staff of the Operations Directorate. Vicki's also a wife, mother, and grandmother, as well as a consultant and certified coach for the next generation of leaders in cyber intelligence and security. Vicki, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Gosh, it's a real honor. Thank you so much for
1: asking me, Melissa.
0: So you and I are speaking for the first time after having been introduced by Howard High, whose wife Denise shared her experiences in the Army in a previous episode, as well as Melody allen Macbeth, a fellow DLI alumna. So you're in very good company. And now that I've stolen a bit of your thunder with the DLI reveal, share with us where you're from originally and what led you to joining the Army.
1: Yeah, I never expected to join the military. Um, I don't really come from a, I mean, my my dad served during the Korean War. He was at a radar site out in Washington State. My grandpa had been in World War II. However, we weren't, you know, a career military family. And um, so grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska, whole family, lived there, mom, dad, brother, sister, grandparents, everybody. Went to University of Nebraska, loved languages, loved to travel, got my degree in French uh, in 77, and uh, had been lucky enough to spend my junior year abroad in France, which, you know, obviously made my French super, and I traveled all over. In fact, I'm sure my parents wondered if I was actually going to come home for my senior year. However, I'm you know, I was coming up on graduating and... Here I've got this degree in French and a degree in political science and not really sure what I wanted to do. Applied for some jobs that would allow for language and travel. Travel was really important, you know, seeing different parts of the world. And in fact, had applied to a few airlines to be a flight attendant. Um, Because again, language, travel, all that. None of those were seeming to pan out. Well, my brother, meanwhile, who's five years younger than I am, he was getting all this literature in the mail from the Army Recruiting Center. And I would look through it and I thought, gosh, you've got language, you could travel. So I took myself down to the recruiter station in Lincoln, and the rest was sort of history. I took the artificial language test and did really well. The recruiter couldn't figure out why I didn't want to go OCS. He goes, you know, you have a degree, you could just go OCS. I said, no, because my motivation really is to do the language and to get, hopefully get uh, assigned overseas. Plus, if I do decide to stay in the Army, you know, I probably would go OCS, but I think I'd be a better officer if I'd been enlisted first. And of course, all these years later, when I look back on that, I think, wow, that actually is true. Had I actually made the army a career which I didn't so I enlisted in the army so in July of 77 I went to Fort Jackson South Carolina for basic training where I was among some of the first women uh, basic training classes at Fort Jackson because before that it had always been all-male so uh, as part of an all-female platoon uh, female drill sergeants, You can imagine the competition to um, be better than the guys. So, yeah, so it was pretty intense. And I like to say it was probably the quietest six to eight weeks of my life I've ever spent because I just wanted to stay under the radar, get in no trouble, do my PT, do my rifle drills. Plus, if they knew you had a college degree, there was this. So this is 1977 there's this bias towards what you probably think you're smarter than the average duck. So I just was like totally below the radar and for somebody growing up in the Midwest. And then suddenly I'm, I mean, I'm lucky in that where I grew up was very, very diverse considering it was the seventies and considering it was Nebraska. So it wasn't like it was the first time I was exposed to a lot of different people with different backgrounds, but it was, um, you know, close quarters as you know, and, um, very interesting things to deal with. So I I learned a lot and um, just kept my mouth shut. I had no suggestions whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And uh, what was funny for my family, um, so I went into the army as a pretty skinny, tiny little, you know, thing. And by the time I'd gone through basic training and all that, when the next time my parents saw me, you know, I had, I had muscle and bulked up and none of my clothes fit me anymore. (laughs) But I was in great shape. I was in great shape. Um, I think the other thing that I always think back to, even though it was many, many years ago, is even though we, the women, we were all very, very different, we really bonded together, right? Like when we would go out and do our running in those horrible combat boots, we didn't leave anybody behind, right? We did not leave anybody behind. The female drill sergeants we had, one in particular, I had a lot of respect for. And I thought, you know, this is probably not your choice, which I found out later had not been. She was actually part of the medical corps in the army, but had been told she would just love to go be a drill sergeant. Later, I remember running into her when we were stationed in Augsburg and she was over on Flat Kasern, which is where the hospital was. And I saw her and I'm thinking, oh my gosh. And she says, oh no, this has always been my MOS, but they told me how much I would love being a drill sergeant. I was <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Um, so yeah, the army was not my plan. In fact, when we were out on, um, bivouac and we went back to the barracks after a few days out in the wilderness, there was a letter for me and it was from Air France, uh, offering me a job, Um, (laughs) but it was, but it was a little late and I actually looking back, Melissa, I have no regrets because Being in the military and especially the language learning at DLI and then where we got stationed and then eventually my civilian career, oh my gosh, um, what a great life. And DLI was wonderful. I mean, even when you're at DLI and you have no money, which, you know, when you're a little, I was lucky I was in E3 uh, because I had college. But my then boyfriend, who's now been my husband for 40 years, he was a... E1 or E2. and But it was a wonderful place because there was so much to do that didn't have to cost any money. And DLI is just a great place.
0: Did you know that you were going to go through DLI when you went through BASIC? Was that a guaranteed... Yes.
1: Yeah. Be, because I had scored so well on. And so I had signed up for that MOS, right. Okay. For the, and uh, for 98 golf uh, language. And because I'd done well on the artificial language test, I knew like, I'm, to your, it's a great point because a lot of people get out of basic and they don't necessarily know where they're going. Mm-hmm. So I was highly motivated to just get through basic because I knew, you know, I was going to go learn Russian and um, I was going to go to DLI and it was going to be okay. So having the French background and then getting thrown into
0: DLI, what was that like? What were you prepped for in terms of learning a language? But did you know what that language skill would lead to in an MOS you had? So
1: we were pretty lucky in that in our class, I mean, we knew, you know, Cold War is going on. They're training up lots of Russian linguists. So we had a pretty good idea that if you made it through basic Russian that you would get assigned someplace to actually use your Russian. I mean, it's tough. And Mm -hmm. French was easy for me compared to Russian. I mean, totally different alphabet. And then The thing about DLI then, as opposed to now, because we've been back, we've been very lucky. My husband and I have been back several times to DLI to see all the improvements and what it's like today. So the curriculum was um, not very sophisticated. And most of the instructors at that time, and I love them dearly, and I have great memories of many of them. These were immigrants from Russia, obviously citizens, but they had no training in how to teach whatever they had done in Russia I mean they were very professional and so forth but they had no you know no training unlike now fast forward all these decades I mean when you graduate from DLI you can get two years of college education accredited because all of the teachers have many of them masters and doctorates in in teaching and I mean it's it's just so different today but back then it was, so it was very, very different. But again, I think what you find in the military is we are a community, right? And we, we supported each other and the teachers were wonderful. So I have great Memories of being at DLI. I mean, it was hard work and, you know, you we all have our different gifts. Like the speaking Russian was not a gift for me, for my husband. His spoken Russian was always amazing. My strength was grammar and translation. So I helped him, he helped me. You know, we all kind of bonded together. So when we finished basic Russian, some of us had the opportunity to apply for... Um, advanced Russian, which meant you pretty much be guaranteed an overseas assignment. And plus, it was more time at DLI, it was more language learning. So why wouldn't you want to apply? So at that time, Everett, my then boyfriend, we both and we were both strong in the class. So we both applied. But we had both agreed <laughs> that if one of us got in and the other didn't, that we weren't going to try to sustain a long distance relationship, right? Because One of us would go on and the other would get to stay for another six months. And that would probably be like, we're, we're, we're okay with that. Well, we both got in to advanced Russian, which was wonderful. And again, we learned so much more Russian, which then afforded us, you know, the opportunity both had so many opportunities because of that finished Russian, went to San Angelo for some of the, tactical training you need to get to kind of further understand signals intelligence and all that kind of stuff. And did that in Texas in the heat of the summer. So we (laughs) went to school at night because it was just blazing hot and then did a few months at fort Meade to learn more about our trade i i look back at that and i think boy we all just have a lot of faith and trust that all this was going to work out and um by that time we knew that we'd both been assigned to um field station augsburg in germany and we were elated um because it was pretty much you could get augsburg or berlin or massawa um ended up getting to augsburg in at christmas time of 79 and if you know anything about the military they really don't want to see you around at christmas because there's nothing really happening so that was awesome so ended up in germany which was wonderful experience we did after being there a while get married had our first child there made lifelong friends there. I mean, to this day, some of our closest friends are the friends we met in the military writ large, but especially at our our time in Germany. Can you share what some of your job responsibilities were at that time? So it was interesting getting to Augsburg again, you know, to put it in context, it's 1979. Um, There are not a lot of women in military intelligence. And it was tough being a woman there, Those that time frame, it was interesting being a woman, period. Because, for example, at DLI, there were probably 15 to 20 men to every woman. I did not particularly find that a wonderful ratio um, because I really (laughs) didn't want to be harassed and um, so forth. So that was interesting. Then fast forward to Augsburg, there weren't that many women doing what I was doing. So my first job you would call me a collector, basically looking for trying to find signals where we had Russian. But I took the test to be a transcriber, which meant I could listen to Russian and translate it into English. And so both my husband, well, he was my boyfriend then, but everybody knew we were a couple, which was not a good thing. So we were both really good Russian linguist. My husband, far better than I am. He's a gifted linguist, period. So we both wanted to test, and some of the senior NCOs wanted us to. We they wanted to test for the transcription work, because that would be a better use of our skills rather than listening to snippets of Russian and identifying, oh yeah, this is a good signal. But then it meant that if because the way the army looked at couples and And couples that have preceded us who had perhaps not behaved well. Mm -hmm. In other words, right? So here we were. So we both tested and we both tested really well. And we both could move into the transcription shop, which was going to be awesome, right? If you're going to be working eight and 10 hours of shift work, you want to be doing something that you really love. So then we were told, well, you can't be on the same shift. So one of you will have to move to another Team and the other one can stay here. Well, that meant we would never see each other, basically. Right. You know. So I said, you know, you're the better linguist, which he is. I will just stay in the collection shop and you go, because the relationship meant more to me. Well, there was this wonderful E7 named Jim, who ran the transcription shop on that particular shift. And he said, this is ridiculous. He says, I've watched you two. I have no reason to think you're going to behave badly at work. He said, so I'm going to go to bat for you that you can both be on the same shift on the same team in the same office. And he did. And so we got to work and it was really funny what we did, Melissa. So I was the only woman. There were like, 12 of us. And I was the only woman, of course. And I sat the furthest away I could possibly sit from Everett. I mean, I, the farthest away I could sit. So there would be no thought that we were, you know, talking at work or any of that, you know, I mean, it was just ridiculous. But that was what it took because again, there was just this perception out there and I was very aware of it and being a being a woman i wanted to dispel that perception right like i'm serious about this job i'm i'm every much a soldier as as you are, right? So yeah. So we both got to do transcription, which meant we got to translate Russian into English. And it was so interesting.
0: Yeah. And how progressive of your E7 to go to bat
1: for you at that time. He is awesome. He was absolutely awesome. But you know, it's it's interesting because he was one of the few men out there whose wife was also in the military because most of the men in charge that was not the case right mm-hmm. they had they had a spouse who kept everything going at home and there was just this again it's the 70s this bias that we really aren't so sure we want women here with us but you're here and we're pretty sure you're just looking for a husband and we're pretty sure you're not really that serious and I was just like, oh, gosh, right? <laughs> so yeah, you're right. But Jim was awesome. He was just amazing to go to bat for us, which, of course, made us even more conscious of, you know, we are going to be top notch, right? We are never going to disappoint you. So how long were you stationed at Augsburg? So we were there three years. And in that time, we got married, had our first daughter. You know, the the Army was interesting for me because at Augsburg, especially once we got married and and had Kelly, again, not used to having married service members with a baby. So I had some suggestions, <laughs> which of course didn't always go over very well, Melissa. And um, I know that my um, battalion commander probably wished i would just keep my suggestions to myself i mean i was never rude or disrespectful or insubordinate however kelly was with the wife of one of our friends on our same shift and she was our priority so i mean when i was at work you had me but you know classic one night it's like 11 o'clock and the trick bus shift bus is coming to the field site to take us back you know over to the housing area and over the loudspeaker. So when you get off the bus, you'll all be going over to the battalion to clean gas masks and weapons and blah, blah, blah. Well, Chris, back then we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have, so there was no way to let the woman who was caring for our child know that like, I'm not going to be there at midnight to pick up our kiddo. Right. So I went into the battalion commander. I said, so I have a suggestion. Uh, (laughs) And I said, so one of us will clean both gas masks and both weapons. And the other one will get our child. And he just sort of looked at me and I said, with a little notice, you know, we could do, you know, we could mm, do this. But mm. So needless to say, when, when my stint at Augsburg was coming to an end, I was not looking to reenlist because it became very clear to me that, you know, there was this joke back then that if the army had wanted you to have a child, they would have issued you orders to have a child. Right. Right. Okay. And I just, you know, the two of us. It wasn't sustainable. Plus, there were a lot of things I liked about the Army. However, there was a lot, you know, I mean, it's the Army, and you they've got rules, and you're going to follow them. And my husband, on the other hand, was a very good soldier. He was just, like, you know, totally squared away. And so he had planned to re-enlist, actually, and then that fell through, which actually I've always thought was kind of a God thing because it ended up so well for us. We came back to Maryland, and applied at NSA, and got hired as Russian linguists. And were
0: there many women in that career field with you at the time?
1: I will say, yeah, there were a lot more women, a lot more women than I had expected, actually. Women from the military, and again, because we were in the Cold War, there were a lot more people in general, but certainly women, taking languages like Russian and Chinese and those kinds of languages in colleges. So we were hiring, you know, co-op students and interns and so forth. So there were quite a few women. And, and then a lot of military women, too, who were still in the service and that were doing a doing a stint at Fort Meade.
0: During this whole time, what did your family think? Because <laughs> your brother was getting the pamphlets for the military. You end up joining. And you, you yeah. have such a great story about becoming a linguist and you know you're going to DLI and then getting stationed in Germany then going to NSA and your family back home in Nebraska what were they thinking not really having ties to the military
1: yeah so not only just not ties to the military but not able to even imagine leaving Nebraska right right yeah whereas I always knew I mean I it was a wonderful place to grow up it absolutely was but I knew there was this whole other world out there, right? When I joined and got on that bus to go to Fort Jackson, I still remember just probably fear was the best uh, emotion to describe the look on my parents' face because, oh my gosh. And I was scared too. I mean, you're going off to, you know, oh my gosh. Yeah. But I will tell you, I mean, my parents, especially my parents, very, very supportive my mom, especially what a trooper, like I did my study abroad in France my junior year and I kept moving the date back closer and closer to my senior year of when I was going to fly back. I mean, to the point that my mom went to the bookstore and bought my books for me because, like, I I was, you know, it was like, oh, my gosh. So always very supportive. I've done some some other things that um, probably weren't expected, wasn't expected that, um, you know, I would be in a, a biracial marriage. Um, again, my parents just kind of said, okay, well, all right. You know, because, again, in the 70s, 80s, that's not like – what you're expecting. Right. So you look back and go, well, I knew what I wanted to get out of the military. And I did.
0: Oh, yeah, you sure did. You you definitely took advantage of the resources available to you. So in transitioning from military to civilian life, but civilian life being working at the NSA, Was that much of a
1: stretch? We were only in five and a half years, so it's not like it was that difficult of a transition to make. But I will tell you, working where I've worked, I've always been grateful for that time in the military because. Uh, Make no mistake, I mean, we have a four-star director and we're a combat support agency. So understanding hierarchy, understanding the military, understanding the services has always been hugely helpful.
0: Can you share a bit of your career progression in an age where technology and communication advance so rapidly? and how your career and responsibilities evolved with that.
1: Yeah, so again, i hugely, hugely lucky. Um little girl growing up in Nebraska, I would never have expected to have been, you know, part of so many different things that have gone on the last many, many years. So starting out there as a Russian linguist, um, I was very fortunate that I was good at the job I never saw myself doing that job for a whole career because it was a very I'm a I'm a people person I'm about relationships and back then especially in the 80s it was the kind of job where you sat at your desk and with your headphones on and oh my goodness and so I was like so I ended up being the one that would train new people when they came in and design job aids and working aids and because it kind of broke it up. And a lot of other people didn't want to do that. They didn't want to train the new person. They just, they didn't want to do that. So I was very fortunate that I had a boss back then who um, one day brought me in his office and he said, I'd like you to be a a team chief, which is like the beginning level of being a, a manager leader at our place. And back then, Melissa, the only people who got to be team chiefs were like the very, very best creme to the creme of linguists, right? Even though they may not be really good at leading people, they were the best linguists, right? And I said, well, Gary, I'm not the best Russian linguist. He goes, no, but you're great with people and you bring, you know, you know how to bring people together and blah, blah, blah. So he was kind of ahead of his time, right? Because he was really looking at qualities of a leader. And um, so I said, well, okay. So that was my very first management job and loved it. Loved figuring out, What motivated people, what inspired people, what their passions were and trying to match that up and then reaching out more and engaging more with others who were also stakeholders in what we were doing, which was unheard of back then. You just sat at your desk. You just did what you were supposed to do. And, you know, we'll tell you if we want you to do anything else. And again, the culture has changed drastically since then. I mean, some of those milestone days, like when the Berlin wall came down, I mean, that was, that was huge. And it was every hand on deck, right? I, I probably hadn't at that point, I probably hadn't actually done transcription and translation for, you know, a couple of years, but I'll tell you, it was every, every hand on deck. So we were all putting, You know, we were all working that. And it was very exciting. And of course, then it changed things. Right. When because we were hugely successful. So when the Berlin Wall came down in 89 and then things over the next couple of years dismantled and, you know, the Soviet Union broke up, it also changed that part of our agency because suddenly you didn't need as many Russian linguists right? So I was one of those that volunteered to go do something different. Um, I wasn't afraid to learn something different. Fortunately, though, a lot of our amazing linguists and experts did stay because, you know, it never really, you know, Russian never really went away, right? So again, always looking for where I can contribute, but also where I can continue to learn and grow and stay aligned with my purpose, which really at the end of the day was trying to make things better, you know, for people, make our jobs easier. As an agency, our our purpose is awesome. You know, it's the protecting the security of the United States and its allies. I mean, who can't get their arms around that, right? But my thing is I always wanted to be in a position where I was helping people helping the organization be better, helping the people be better. So I went out to our training school. This was the 90s, and I actually thought I would stay there the rest of my career because it, it just It it just spoke to all my passions. So I was um, working in the leadership curriculum area, teaching leadership, and then I was asked, and I kind of had my money where my mouth was. They wanted me to take on – a huge responsibility out at our training school. It was a, a troubled area. And I kind of said, well, okay, I'll do it. So that almost killed me. is oh. um, <laughs> there were a lot of things that, <clears throat> some pretty interesting things that had been allowed to go on for a really long time. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So um, I did that. And uh, we did turn that organization around took a lot of us and getting a lot of people on board you know for me I always I always ask God okay why 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 am I doing this (laughs) you know and then you go on to some job down the road and you realize or some life experience and you realize oh that's why that had to happen so I'd be ready for this right um because during that time frame i worked for some great people and i learned a lot about our agency's support system for people and leaders who are dealing with unproductive environments, who are dealing with troubled employees, who are dealing with all sorts of things. I learned a lot about those resources. So that was really, really good. And then an opportunity opened up to get to go back to operations. And um, I went back to operations and I'm really glad I did because um, little did I know that a year later, 9-11 would happen, which of course changed us forever. Mm -hmm. Um, By this time, our daughter was in college, um, so I could be pretty flexible with what was needed, because back then, we weren't, as agencies, fighting the war on terror, we weren't connected electronically then, Mm -hmm. so... It was really um, interesting, to say the least, right, to get information back and forth and make sure that everybody was connected together. Of course, now we're all very connected, which is awesome, which is how we get things done because we are connected. So back then, it was very interesting. And everybody went to different shifts so that everything was covered 24-7. I remember volunteering in the office I was in with just some amazing people. My husband being there, he totally got it right. I mean, that's that's the advantage of both of you working in that kind of a job where you can't talk about it at home, but you understand. I also remember we were all sent home that first day. Um, And it was so weird because none of us wanted to go home. I'm actually surprised to hear that the
0: NSA would send people home. Remembering back to that day, I was stationed in Istanbul, Turkey, and there were only 10 of us Americans stationed at this, uh, as an attachment to the U.S. consulate, but we weren't with the U.S. consulate. So all the information we got through an interpreter, we were like, no, you misunderstood something in translation. Um, But I remember they were sending people home because it was so big and we didn't, have, we had cell phones issued to us, but we, you know, the smartphones weren't around, and there was just, we knew it was something huge happening, and they needed people to be accountable in one place to be safe, so that when they did get information, then we could go do our thing, but I'm surprised the NSA sent people home, so please continue.
1: Well, I think, you know, we didn't know what we didn't know, right, because you didn't know, were we going to be the next target, were we, you just didn't know right? We'd never had to, to deal with this. And of course, then <laughs> next day, we're all back. And General Hayden came on the all, you know, the announcements to us. And he was the director at the time. And oh my what a what amazing guy. And he said, that won't happen again. And we will never back down. Right. But we just didn't know. And in, I, I think in an abundance of caution for safety, right? Of course, then, you know, we're all trying to get home, right? But none of us Mm -hmm. wanted to go home, right? Mm Because we were just like, oh my gosh, because that's the one thing. And and you know that having been in this field, I mean, we are best in a crisis, right? Like, we just totally come together. And red tape and bureaucracy, all of that, that just we just push that aside i mean and it's also when we're most innovative and creative i mean in those few weeks after 9 11 some of the things that had just been conceptual literally on the back of a napkin became reality and then that that was the beginning of wow we have not only do we have to change some policies but we have got to get connected you know electronically right you can't have these stovepipes anymore which looking back Happened quickly, but technology was also improving
0: so quickly at the same time. So it's almost like as soon as you as something came online, it was almost obsolete because oh, yeah. it really was it was continually being updated.
1: Mm-hmm. Um so how did that affect the work that you were doing? You look to partnerships that you might not have before, right? I mean, and you you also then looked at, gosh, do we need to be hiring more people who do? So we, you know, that's when we started hiring uh, more and more computer scientists, um, you know, with cybersecurity backgrounds and so forth. So you had to take a step back and really look at okay everything from a to z you know besides the intelligence community what else do we need to be doing right and oh and our training how are we training our folks because ct counterterrorism is it's people a lot of agencies you know we want to we want to do it ourselves right we want to created ourselves, well, that's just not always practical.
0: In everything evolving to be more inclusive, to support the mission, can you speak about serving as the first senior strategist for leadership development and succession planning uh, position that you created?
1: Yeah, so the um, director of our signals intelligence director at the time was very, very focused on okay we've got this amazing mission but we've got to be looking more at how are we developing our people and our future leaders and so forth so again she knew me well and i had been in chief of staff jobs where i i'd had to do a lot of these types of things so she asked if i would Take that on and kind of create that that job. And at first I was reluctant because I was concerned if there would really be support for it or if it was just lip service. Right. Because mm-hmm. we so badly needed some focus on career development and succession planning and how we were Defining what we wanted our leaders to be and do and so forth, but I took it and she was fabulous absolutely stood by her word that we were going to give more people opportunities, not just the gems we knew, but uncover those hidden gems right and. Be much more transparent about opportunities, about what we were expecting from people. And it was interesting when she said, well, tell me how much staff you need. And I said, well, I really don't need anything besides an executive assistant who can help me. And she's like, well, how are you going to do this without a staff? I said, I'm going to leverage the staffs we already have that are all doing pieces of this but don't have any direction or guidance or an overall vision. Mm. I said, I don't need a staff. I'm going to leverage them and we're going to do this together and we're going to figure it out. And we did. And it was, um, we made a lot of progress and then fast forward, every part of the agency instituted this type of position. And so today every part of the agency has this position. So I did that in 2011 time frame. And here we are. And we're we we're seeing dividends from investing in people, um, having the conversations, providing feedback. Cause now what I do is executive coaching and I'm coaching some of these folks who we've identified to be our future leaders and they're just awesome. Just awesome i could be their mother in some cases but you know it's wonderful but it's wonderful you know to see that we our culture is evolving and and being much more um transparent instead of just you know kind of the green eye shades and who mm-hmm. you know and um yeah opening things up more for for everyone well and as leaders if we're not building other leaders then, A, you can. I, I've said this to, to seniors who are, have now since retired, you know, who really held everything very close and didn't want to develop their successors and share their knowledge. I said, Well, this really means you can never retire. <laughs> right. You can't die. You can't retire.
0: So, if a young person listening to this episode is interested in pursuing a career at the NSA, What do you think would help them have a standout resume and a successful interview?
1: Wow. So um, I do work with a lot of folks, um, helping them apply. And and of course, it's going to depend on what discipline you're interested in. But I think in general, do really well in school, obviously, because we, you know, it's very, very competitive. But it's not just... I mean, when I came on board, it was kind of very focused on your GPA and so forth. It's no longer that way. I mean, we're, of course, we want to know that you've done well in school, but it's bigger than that. It's it's more, how are you doing in life? For folks who are able to do an internship, for folks who are able to do some traveling of course, sometimes if you've traveled some places, it makes it tougher to get hired. But, you know, also you know, take advantage of um, the government is so much more out there. I mean, there's lots of job fairs, even now that we can't do anything in person, but there's all these online opportunities to learn more about the intelligence community, to learn more about, you know, things that are going on out there. But I mean, do well in school and, you know, look for those things that'll kind of set you apart. Like some of the internships people have had, I just looked at a resume of a young woman. I mean, she's finishing her master's to the London School of Economics. She Her her undergrad internship was with the State Department and she made the most of that, right? If you're lucky enough to do an internship or a program with the government, network, make those connections and stay connected. Those, those folks can help you. And then we test people, but it's not just in their subject matter area. It's also in how they handle working with others, collaboration, you know, how do you handle stress? What does stress look like for you? It's so all those things, right? And one woman I just finished working with on her resume, she really wanted to go for a particular field, but when I looked at her resume and then talked with her it, it came out that actually her experiences, her education really pointed to something else, right? And a lot of it too, if you apply for something, whether it's at our agency or a different agency, and you don't get what you applied for, but you're offered something else, and it's something you believe you could be happy with, go for it. Because you can, you know, I'm a living testament in staying at one agency, you can do so many different things in a career. So a lot of it sometimes is just getting your foot in the door. Yeah, I think that's
0: true of any position. I'm I'm currently working as an assistant in a workplace that typically recruits recent college graduates, often as their first job opportunity and their first job opportunity in the industry, and in my case, the entertainment industry. And it's not a job you'd want to have forever, but it is a wonderful stepping stone to the next opportunity. And also for me has given a lot of insight in how the business works because it definitely is show business. So you've recently retired, but you continue to work as a consultant. Can you share what that's like?
1: Yeah. So I'm very fortunate. A lot of the consulting work I'm doing in various agencies, some of it's with seniors, some of it's with folks who are At that more senior GG level, and some with senior executives, I'm also working with the company where I learned my, where I got my coaching certification, and we're teaching classes to leaders on how to be more coach-like, you know, how to ask open, powerful questions, to have more dialogue, to be more empowering. So that's exciting. Because again, we need a culture where people feel safe and valued, and can bring their whole person to work. And we need our um, managers and leaders to be less directive and, uh, you know, more inclusive of their their workforce, and not always see themselves as the problem problem solvers, but um, empowering others to do that. So, yeah. So I feel like I'm one of the most fortunate people in the world because. It, again, that is in total alignment with my purpose of trying to help other people be their best selves. So you're so relatable and easy to talk to. And I'm
0: curious if your military background is ever brought up. And if so, what is the
1: reaction like? Usually people are shocked, right? Because <laughs> there's, again, I think even now, even though I, you know, there's this image of what a woman who's been in the military should look like, sound like, be like, and I just find it so amusing, right?
0: Right. So if a young woman were to come up to you today and
1: say she's thinking of joining the military, what would you say to her? Well, in fact, I I have that. And um, I am very encouraging. I mean, I think it's like the military or any field. What is it that you're looking for, you know, so I'm going to ask some questions. What is it you're looking for? What's what's the driver here? What are you going to get out of this? What do you bring to it? What do you see yourself doing there? But I'm I'm really uh very supportive of joining the military. I mean, I think there's there's a lot you learn about yourself. You learn a lot about leadership. You are around a diverse community. And it really is a community.
0: Yeah, agreed. Vicki, I have really enjoyed speaking with you and I've learned a lot. Thank you so much for sharing your time with me and your experiences.
1: Well, thank you for asking me. And it's been really nice to talk with you. You're very easy to talk with. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate all of you listening. If you're a
0: veteran in crisis or are concerned about one, contact the Veterans Crisis Line at 800-273-8255, option 1, or visit veteranscrisisline.net. Confidential support is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year.